Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It is Saturday, August 6, 2022. I come to you each morning for uh, prayer. Saturdays, though, we uh, typically, and not always, but typically look at tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle readings and look at some devotional resources maybe that might help, um, things that you could even have uh, to help study and prepare uh, to hear that word tomorrow. You know that uh, we do print the upcoming week's uh, readings and hymnody in the previous week's Congregation of Prayer insert that's in the bulletin. So um, you always have that opportunity throughout the week to look forward to the, the week to come, and that will help you, mostly because um, we can't necessarily preach or teach through everything that is presented to us on the day. And you just have to pick out a theme or two and focus upon that, all right? So that uh, we, well, there's other ideas that you might want to take into account. Now, this week, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, <laughs> the three readings, Old Testament epistle and gospel reading, um, all have really uh, a focus to them in the understanding of the church, and then also the infiltration of uh, within the church of false teachers, and uh, that warning for Christians to be on guard and to watch out for them. All right, so that theme you'll pick up um, even today as we look at those readings. All right, so let's begin. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, memory verse one more time. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Second Samuel 22, verses 26 through 27, which I think is the Old Testament reading Actually, uh, for Trinity 9, so uh, in two weeks. There you go. Our psalm is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help, I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me, give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your just decrees. 
Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your just and righteous decrees endures forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. My computer got moved here. There we go. I think it's... Why is it not quite in front of me? All right. Our first reading for tomorrow is from Jeremiah chapter 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say, or they continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, No evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord, and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from their e- the evil of their doings. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar of off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the people have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of, their own, of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor, as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is chaff to the wheat, says the Lord, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks, or the rock in pieces. All right, so we have um, here the nature of God's word, and then those whom the Lord has appointed, and of course those who are imposters, who set themselves up to be the, uh, to give the appearance of as one the Lord has sent, right? False prophets who forget, uh, what is their chief goal? Is to cause uh, you to forget the word of the Lord um, and to follow after um, their word and and your dreams. All right. Um, Now, Luther uh, uses this text at the end of actually one of his more famous works. Um, We usually know it by the the beginning of its name, Against the Heavenly Prophets. These are are sometimes called the Enthusiasts. but it, it actually has a longer title. It's Against the Heavenly Prophets in the Matter of Images and Sacraments. Um, it's a very long work. Let me look, see how long it is. I'm scrolling very fast on my computer. I'm still going. It's basically all of, almost all of volume 40 of Luther's works. So 1525, Against the Heavenly Prophets in the Matter of Images and Sacraments. Um, it was written against Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, um, who was 
originally um, a friend of Luther, but then when Luther was in exile, he came through Wittenberg. Well, he was appointed by Luther, um, you know, to be pastor in his stead there in Wittenberg, um, and he came through and destroyed the um, images and the vestments, um, altered the order of service, um, and did all sorts of, of damage, right? So um, it was a little bit, what, what do you want to say? He was he was reform minded, but but in a violent way. Whereas um, Luther came out against him uh, quite vociferously here, and uh, so there, first there was a letter, and then it was expanded into this longer work. And it's about a hundred and I'm doing the math here, 150 pages in English. So I'm not going to read it all for you today, <laughs> of course. Um, but I want to read to you the very end. Um, so you're going to lose all the argumentation, but it's really, I think it's really important um, in responding to someone like an, we might call an iconoclast, who would say, we can't have um, imagery, we can't have statues and artwork, because those are forms of idolatry. Um, but they, what's interesting is that they went after um, things that aren't commanded or forbidden by God. So we're talking about the against statues, hymnary, right? Hymns, um, vestments, paraments, vestments being what the pastor wears, paraments, what the altar is is wearing. Um, it went after those things, but in the process also, um, Karlstadt went after um, baptism and the Lord's Supper and absolution. And he attacked those things too as being of the same kind. Of course, you know, uh, <laughs> as you learn to confess in the small catechism, um, Luther repeatedly adds this question, um, whether it's to baptism, supper, or absolution, where is this written, right? That these are not, uh, the sacraments are not things that are appointed by man, but are appointed by God, right? Uh, yes, some, to some degree, the, the manner or me, you know, means of delivering those sacraments uh, can vary from place to place. Um, but for example, baptism, of course, is water in the word, right? Two essential things. Um, so at the very end, he comes... Um, to, to the sacraments, um, and or actually he's been in the sacraments, but I'm going to read kind of his summary here. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where to jump in without having to read too much. All right, here we go. Were what they say true, then one would also have to deny that gospel, baptism, and sacrament are nowhere, that Christ can't be um, bound to a place in time, is, is the argument they've made. For Christ is present in the gospel and yet must be orally and bodily in places and localities. And Christ could not be in heaven at the right hand of the Father, since here too we might say, see, there Christ is. And of St. Stephen, when he saw Christ stand, Acts 8, we might say, thou liest, for Christ is neither here nor there. Right? So he's mocking him. If the carnal thoughts of these prophets were worth anything, indeed, their own teaching about the knowledge and remembrance of Christ could not stand, for they imply that he is at one place, right? So um, they deny the word of the ascension that he fills all things, right? This phrase, here nor there, must be understood, first of all, referring to bodily external places and things, and second, as referring to such bodily places as are particularly prescribed by false prophets for others as necessary for salvation instead of permitting freedom in regard to such things as we have discussed in regard to the papacy. We teach not that the body and blood of Christ are visibly present in external things, but that they are hidden in the sacrament. Nor do we say that he is and must be in particular places and is not free to be in all, 
Rather, we claim that he and the bread and wine are and must be free in regard to all localities, places, times, and persons. We even say that liturgically, don't we? With saints and angels and the whole host of heaven, right? The reason for saying, quote, this is my body and not this is Christ, is that we might not regard the whole Christ, that is, his kingdom, as in the sacrament, but see in it clearly and particularly the true body, true and real body, as a part of his kingdom and of the whole Christ, right? So, um, he's saying that we say this is my body to indicate that it is truly Christ present in the sacrament bodily, right? Um, whereas if you say this is Christ, uh, which is something that Karlstadt did, um, you're suggesting kind of a piece of the whole, right? Because we are the body of Christ collectively as the church, you see? All right. In the same manner, we do not call the gospel Christ or the kingdom of Christ, but speak of it as an oral bodily preaching, regarding it as part of the whole of Christ, the whole Christ or of his kingdom, right? It has the character of the whole Christ in that it is not necessarily bound to any particular locality, but is free to all places. Therefore, when we speak of Christ, it is of the whole, but when we speak of the body, it is as of a part of the whole, right? So, we have the whole Jesus in the divine service. Everywhere, two or three are gathered in his name, right? Um, yeah, and the, the church is present, uh, visibly, invisibly, but by faith, right? And yet, we can also speak of the local congregation as, um, as a part of the body of Christ. But we can't do that of Christ preaching, and we can't do that of Christ in his body and blood in the sacrament, right? That is the whole Christ. Herewith, I will be content for this time, on page 220, so 150 pages later, to Dr. Karlstadt's contention as to our authority to bring the body and blood of Christ into the sacrament, we have given sufficient proof, and I'll urge you to read that. Again, volume 40 of Luther's works. And he will have to keep us, uh, let us keep our belief that the bread that we break is the body of Christ. This we has truly its authority from the words of Christ himself at his supper. What he imagines concerning the righteousness of mortification and its coming before the inner righteousness of the Spirit is his own fancy and is without any foundation. For above you have heard the right order. At the beginning and the first of all is the faith in the heart, the righteousness of the Spirit, then follows the mortification and death of the old nature, Romans 8. For if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit, he says, which thus must be there. This is my answer to all the books of Dr. Karlstadt on the sacrament, which he has written and contrived over the past three years. I have answered him in three weeks, and will give him another three years and three more, or six in all, uh, to make a decent reply to me. I warn them once more to see to it that they meet the issue, for they need it. For my part, I courteously give them, th- give them thanks for my whole heart and ask for none in return, because they have so greatly confirmed me in regard to this article of faith. Right? He's saying that in his... Uh, somewhat vociferous response uh, to Karlstadt. It's actually helped or it's benefited him um, in what articulating his confession of faith. For now, I see that it is not possible to produce anything in opposition to this article. I've gone to such lengths and written so much in order to show clearly how obscurely and disorderly Dr. Karlstadt writes. I hope that from this book, Dr. Karlstadt, first of all, may better understand himself. For I do not doubt that up to now he has not himself understood what he has been doing or whether his teaching may lead. This is to the Old Testament text. He cannot rightly grasp or understand anything, much less develop his ideas or write. That's kind of an insult. (laughs) But um, 
This is the thing about false teachers is they often don't even understand themselves. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand that they're speaking against Christ and his kingdom, right? In closing, I want to warn everyone truly and fraternally to beware of Dr. Karlstadt and his prophets for two reasons. First, because they run about and teach without a call. This God condemns through Jeremiah, who says, I did not send them, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. For this reason, they are judged by Christ as thieves and murderers who do not enter by the door, but climb in by another way. So um, a rightly ordered call is, um, in Luther's estimation, and and we would agree, uh, necessary uh, to preach and teach in the Christian congregation. Right? Um, It's not just a title. It's not just a you know, an imprimatur, uh, but to actually be uh, ordained and then and called to the local congregation, uh, nor- according to the normal church rites, is that no one is established as a preacher um, who has not been examined, who, have, who has not been, um, in a sense, vetted by the church at large, right? And in my case, it was done by um, uh, district officials, it was done by um, seminary faculty. It was done through theological examination before uh, ordination. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was a, what a six-year process or something. Of course, there was um, instruction in the midst of all of that. All right, um, they boast about possessing the spirit more than the apostles, and yet for more than three years now have secretly prowled about and flung about their dung. Were he a true spirit, he would have at once come forward and given proof of his call by signs and words. But he is a treacherous secret devil who sneaks around in corners until he has done his damage and spread his poison. Luther's not holding any punches here at the very end. The second reason is that these prophets avoid, run away from, and are silent about the main points of Christian doctrine. So now Luther is providing for you, I mean, granted, it's 150 pages here, but um, at the very end he's saying, first, have they been called through the through the normal order of the church? If they've not, then they then they're not speaking as one who has authority, right? Um, this has been the case since the time of the apostles, right? Is that the apostles established their successors, etc., and they're examined to see whether they preach and teach um, according to the to Christ's word, and that's that second point. How do you, how can you tell if, if someone's a false prophet? Not simply if they came without being invited. That's one way. Paul talks about that in Galatians 2 with the super apostles, right, who come in um, by force. But also, um, what are they saying? Examine their words. Is it according to, uh, is it according to Christ in, in the scriptures, right? Do they even speak of the main points of Christian doctrine? Do they, do they confess the six, you know, six chief parts, as the catechism gives it, for example? All right. For in no place do they teach how we are to become free from our sins, obtain a good conscience, and win a peaceful and joyful heart before God. This is what really counts. That's beautiful, right? The central uh, main points of Christian doctrine are how to become free from our sins, forgiveness, right? How to obtain a good conscience and, and to win a peaceful and joyful heart before God, right? That is, everything centers around the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. The true, this is the true sign that their spirit is of the devil who can, be unu- who can use unusual new words to excite, terrify, and mislead consciences. But their spirit cannot give quietness or peace, but goes on and teaches special works in which they are to exercise and discipline themselves. Right? So they actually invent a whole new religion, even though it's under the guise of being Christian. They have no idea how a good conscience can be gained or ought to be constituted, for they have not felt or ever recognized it. How can they know and feel it when they come and teach of themselves without a call? No good can come in this way. The grace of God be with us all. Amen. 
<laughs> nice ending, right? So I, I think this is this is key. Luther's making another point here too, is that of the church that is faithful to the ordinances that, that Jesus has established and doesn't invite, or excuse me, invent new rites and ceremonies to take their place, um, maybe to come alongside and to support and benefit them. Um, that's also another good way to diagnose, right? D- does the church confess baptism? Does it does it forgive your sins um, daily and richly according to your baptism, right? Does it deliver forgiveness um, in the supper according to Christ's own word? Does it even use the the means which Christ has instituted for that, bread and wine, right? Um, does it preach the gospel, not namely, again, forgiveness of sins in Christ the crucified, right? Um, does it pre- distinguish law and gospel rightly? Hmm? These seem like, well, that's just the basics, pastor. Of course, you know, all Christians or most Christians do that. Not in my experience, right? I don't know about your experience, but not in my experience. Maybe amongst Lutherans, thanks, thanks be to God, um, I would say, you know, of our flavor <laughs> in particular, um, not so much. There are many who call themselves Lutheran who I don't think are that faithful, right? Uh, but I read like, oh, I don't know, the, the local, uh, you know, from the sounder, you know, you look and you look at the clergy corner or whatever it's called. I forget whatever the column's called. I write for it periodically. Got one coming up here pretty soon. Where is it? Um, I rarely see um, the gospel proclaimed. I rarely see, um, no, this guy's actually pretty decent. Usually I haven't looked at it yet. Uh, rarely see law and gospel properly distinguished. All right. Um, so here's his thing for anyone who professes to be a follower, follower of Christ, there are essential priorities, all right? And what are the essential priorities? Um, A day filled with activities? No. A day in which we achieve the most important things, prayer, Bible reading, meditating on God's word, all right? And then he uses uh, Mary and Martha and don't be anxious. And he also has John Calvin in the middle, but he's at a community church. I don't know why he brings up Calvin. I'd have to read the article and more. I guess, what are we spending time on? All right, but there's no gospel in it. So, I mean, there you are. You're like, oh, read your Bible. Fine. Right. But what's the, what's the message of the Bible? Here he's speaking to unbelievers, largely, you know, who are reading the paper, if they even read that clergy comment. Is, is it the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Is that proclaimed? Nope. <laughs> right. No, I might, I might not either, depending on, but he says the most important thing is to read your Bible. No, the most important thing is that you believe in Christ who forgives your sins. And he's del- that's delivered through the scriptures, right? Okay, so that's what I'm saying. Um, we think that these are the basic things and that most people get them right, even Christians. Uh, not in my experience. Not in my experience. Right? And uh, I'm not condemning them, but I'm calling them to repentance, right? Um, as much as I have to call myself to repentance for such things. All right. Uh, yeah, so watch out for that. Don't assume that just because the pastor seems to be faithful that he is, right? Luther had to actually warn the German, the people in Wittenberg, because um, they got caught up in what Karlstadt was saying, and they believed him. Caused a great deal of damage. All right. Um, Our epistle for tomorrow is from Acts 20, and this is St. Paul. Uh, What's the occasion? Do you remember? My, My memory is not so good, so let me look here. Where is he? Uh, he is, um, speaking to the elders at Ephesus. All right. So there you go. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed of yourselves 
and to all the flock of among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely, fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right. So um, Paul here is picking up on a uh, metaphorical picture um, from the prophets that Jesus then uses as well, right? Wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, that idea, wolves come in as if they are shepherds, right? And I mean, this has to do with the nature of the church. And again, there's that regularly established order that Luther was talking about, rightly called, and uh, but also then speak of the main doctrines of Christ, right? And this nature of the church, I think it's still misunderstood, and I think it's worth our effort to try to uh, understand maybe a little bit more, all right? Um, so, in the article on the church from the Augsburg Confession, this would be Articles uh, 7 and 8, um, I'm going to start here, all right? So, listen to what Melanchthon has to say here. In the Confession, Augsburg Confession, we have presented the sentence almost word for word. What's the sentence? Oh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is defined by the third article of the creed, which teaches us to believe that there is a holy Catholic church. The wicked indeed are not a holy church, the words that follow, namely, the communion of saints, seems to be added in order to explain what the church signifies, that is, the congregation of saints, who have with each other the fellowship in the same gospel or doctrine and the same Holy Spirit who renews, sanctifies, and governs their, art, their hearts. Mm -hmm. This article has been presented for a necessary reason, right? So this is, again, Melanchthon in the Apologies responding to the confutation um, from, the, from the Roman theologians in response to the Augsburg Confession, which was presented to the Holy Roman Emperor at Augsburg. Okay. Um, this article has been presented for a necessary reason. We see the infinite dangers that threaten the destruction of the church. In the church itself, the number of the wicked who oppress it is too high to count. Right? Now, this is really important for us as Christians. We forget this. Um, that until the last day, it's wheat and, wheat and tares, sheep and goats. Right? There's no separation. Uh, uh, but that means that there is always a mixture of those who believe and those who don't, those who are um, proponents of the gospel and those who are opponents, right? Even within the church. Therefore, this article in the Creed, third article, shows us these consolations in order that we might not despair, but may know that the church will remain until the end of the world. 
No matter how great the multitude of the wicked is, we may know that the church still exists and Christ provides those gifts he has promised to the church, namely, to forgive sins, to hear prayer, to give the Holy Spirit. Uh, The creed says, church Catholic, in order that we might not understand the church to be an outward government of certain nations. Rather, the church is people scattered throughout the whole world. They agree about the gospel and have the same Christ, the same Holy Spirit, and the same sacraments, whether they have the same or different human traditions. Right. So again, central doctrines, even if other things vary. The central being, what was it, what were the things there again? Agree on the gospel, have the same Christ, the same Holy Spirit, the same sacraments. The explanation appearing in the decrees says the church in its wide sense embraces good and evil. Likewise, it says that the wicked are in the church only in name, not in fact. The good are in the church both in fact and in name. To this effect, there are many passages in the fathers. For Jerome says, the sinner, therefore, who has been soiled with any blotch cannot be called a member of Christ's church. Neither can he be said to be subject to Christ. Hypocrites and wicked people are members of of this true church according to the outward rites, titles, and offices. Yet when the church is defined, it is necessary to define what is the living body of Christ and what is in name and in fact the church. There are many reasons for this. We should understand what chiefly makes us members, living members of the church. If we define the church only as outward political order of good and wicked, or I might add as having your name on a membership roster somewhere, right? People will not understand that Christ's kingdom is righteousness of heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit. People will conclude that the church is only outward observance of certain forms of worships and rites, Christmas and Easter. (laughs) Likewise, what difference will there be between the people of the law and the church if the church is only an outward political order? But Paul distinguishes the church from the people of the law, that is Israel, in this way. The church is a spiritual people. It has not been distinguished from the pagans, by civil rights, its polity, and civil affairs. Instead, it is God's true people reborn by the Holy Spirit. Among the people of the law, Israel, apart from Christ's promise, even the earthly seed had promises about bodily things such as government. Even though the wicked among them were called God's people because God had separated this earthly seed from the other nations by certain outward ordinances and promises, the wicked did not please God. But the gospel brings not merely a shadow of eternal things, but the eternal things themselves, the Holy Spirit and righteousness. By the gospel, we are righteous before God. All right, are we getting to the the Acts text? Yeah, we're getting closer. All right. Only those people who receive the promise of the Spirit receive it according to the gospel. Besides, the church is Christ's kingdom, distinguished from the devil's kingdom. It is certain, however, that the wicked are in the devil's power and members of his kingdom. Paul teaches this when he says that the devil is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, verse 2. Christ says to the Pharisees, who certainly had outward fellowship with the church, that is, with the saints among the people of the law, as office holders, sacrificers, and teachers, quote, you are of your father the devil, John 8, 44. Therefore, the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is properly the congregation of saints. For the wicked are ruled by the devil, and captives of the devil, they are not ruled by the Spirit of Christ. Even, as I'm saying, even if they consider themselves members of the church, even if they show up and they sit in the pew. Um, I've had this happen. (laughs) There are those who came to disrupt and to tear down the church, and yet who were regularly sitting in the pew. Why say more when the matter is clear? If the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is distinguished from the devil's kingdom, it follows necessarily that the wicked are not the church, 
since they are in the devil's kingdom. It is true that, because Christ's kingdom has not yet been revealed, the wicked are mixed in with the church and hold offices. But the wicked are not Christ's kingdom, even though that revelation has not yet been made. For Christ enlivens his true kingdom by his Spirit, whether it is revealed or is covered by the cross, just as the glorified Christ is the same Christ who is afflicted. Christ's parables clearly agree with this. He says, the good seed is the, is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, Matthew thirteen thirty-eight. The field, he says, is the world, not the church. John the Baptist speaks about the entire Jewish people and says that eventually the true church will be separated from that people. Therefore, this passage is more against the adversaries than in favor of them, because it shows that the true and spiritual people are to be separated from the earthly people. Christ also speaks of outward appearance of the church when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, Matthew 13, 47. Likewise, ten virgins, Matthew 25. He teaches that the church has been covered by a lot of evils, so that this stumbling block may not offend the pious, and so that we may know that the word and sacraments are powerful even when administered by the wicked. Right? So that's also a key um, doctrine from the councils. Um, yeah, it goes back 1,500 years at this point. Well, maybe a thousand years. Meanwhile, he teaches that the godless people, although they have fellowship and outward signs, are not Christ's true kingdom and members. They are members of the devil's kingdom. We are not dreaming of a platonic state as, as some wickedly charged, some perfect church. But we do say that this church exists, truly believing in righteous people scattered throughout the world. We add the marks, right? So now here's how you can distinguish the true church. And again, this is essential for our gospel tomorrow. Um, you know, how are you going to tell who are the false prophets and the true prophets? Who are you going to tell who are the, the false shepherds and the true shepherds? Luther said, or excuse me, Melanchthon says, the marks, the, the pure teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. That's the mark of the true church. The pure teaching of the gospel, forgiveness of sins in Christ's name, and the sacraments, forgiveness of sins delivered um, with water, bread, and wine, and through a word of absolution. The church is properly the pillar of this truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, for it keeps the pure gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. The foundation is the true knowledge of Christ in faith. There are also many weak persons who build upon foundation that's foundational stubble that will perish, holding certain harmful opinions. Nevertheless, because the weak do not overthrow the foundation, they are both forgiven and corrected. The writings of the Holy Fathers declare that sometimes, even, they built stubble upon the foundation, but that this did not overthrow their faith. But most of those errors do overthrow faith. Our adversaries defend these errors. Among them is their condemnation of the articles about the forgiveness of sins, in which we say that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. But the Roman Church of Luther's day condemned that, huh? Likewise, it is clear in a deadly error when the adversaries teach that people merit forgiveness of sins by loving God before grace. This is an example of removing the foundation, Christ. Likewise, why do we need faith in the sacraments? Oh, why do we need faith if the sacraments justify by the outward act, without a good motive in the part of the one using them? Right? Ex opera operato, you've probably heard that before. That they, the sacraments benefit you just by the act of doing them, regardless of whether you receive them or you even believe them. Hmm. That's the Roman teaching. Just as the church has the promise that it will always have the Holy Spirit, so it also has warnings that there will be wicked teachers and wolves to our text, Acts 20. Yet the church, in the proper sense, has the Holy Spirit. Although wolves and wicked teachers run rampant in the church, they are not properly of Christ, or properly Christ's kingdom. Just as Lyra also testifies when he says, 
The church does not consist of people in power or ecclesiastical or secular dignity, because many princes and archbishops and others of lower rank have been found to have apostatized from the faith. Therefore, the church consists of those persons in whom there is a true knowledge and confession of faith and truth. All right. So again, what are the marks? Um, Truly believing and righteous people scattered throughout the world, um, gathered around the pure teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. This church is properly the pillar of the truth, for it keeps the gospel, and it builds on that foundation. All right? So again, how can you tell? Uh, Again, we make this more complicated than we need to. Listen to what the preacher says. Examine that preaching according, um, according to God's word. All right? They may say true things from God's word, but do they do they preach Christ and him crucified? Which Paul says is is actually the ground and center of all Christian faith. First Corinthians three. Just go read it. Yeah. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the distinction. All right. I was thinking about this um as I was riding my bike this morning. I saw that um two churches in our in our um town of random are I'm going to have a joint Bible, not joint Bible study, a joint vacation Bible school. And um, one might ask, how can they have a combined Bible school? Two very different traditions, um, the United Church of Christ and the um, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, right? So you have um, the United Church of Christ with the Lutheran Church in America, right? How could these two um, seemingly distinct confessions of faith have a combined vacation Bible school. They don't even teach the same thing, or do they? Right. So this is the this is something that um, it might be worth your exploration to go and say to try to answer that question. What distinguishes today the United Church of Christ from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America? I'm not sure that you're going to find um, a, an answer um, because they share seminaries, they share um, pulpits, they share preachers, um, they worship together often. So why are there two different churches? Why do they maintain? Um, each individual identity. That's the question. Hmm. All right. I think that's enough on that. So uh, pay attention tomorrow. We'll talk more about the church and uh, office of the ministry and um, who to listen to and why. And uh, try not to be too self-promoting in that regard. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you have to warn. I, that's part of part of the, the duty of the Christian preacher is to warn against false teaching. All right. Uh, if it's self-promoting, oh well. All right, uh, Lord's Prayer, second petition. Let's say it. Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. All right, uh, let's sing our hymn in the interest of time. Let's sing the last two stanzas.
death wholly defeated, and thereby my righteousness fully completed. Salvation's white raiments I there did obtain, and in them in glory with you I shall reign. Therefore you Very good. All right, so the most important thing, according to the hymn, is faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, right? And with that, then, eternal life and uh, everything else, right? In loving forgiveness of Jesus, enfold me. I count all but lost that that Christ I may obtain. Great hymn. Let us pray. O God, whose never-failing providence orders all things, both in heaven and earth, we humbly implore you to put away from us all hurtful things, and to give us those things that are profitable for us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day in Thanksgiving with Van, who celebrates his birthday with Samantha and Zachary who celebrate their anniversary. We pray for John and Diana, Carl, Jim, Lindsay, Karen, Ron and Sandra, and the rest of the, our households. Pray in Thanksgiving with Tim at the gift of healing. We pray uh, for our catechumens, Matt and Maureen. We also pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Pastor Coda, Kelsey, Dan, Brad, Taylor, and Pat. We pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, Paul, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially that of Gathering Place at St. Paul Falls. And we ask the Lord to give us generous hearts to support their work. And we ask the Lord uh, to give to us a disdain of earthly things. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us... Our trespasses, as we forgive those excuse me, who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, it's been a joy to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer. Come to you each morning 
at 9 a.m. or thereabouts. Uh, tomorrow we have Divine Service, though, at 9.30, so come join us for that. Uh, Bible class following, and uh, that will continue on our study of Zechariah. We'll be in Zechariah 11, uh, which is pretty intense, so uh, be ready. And hopefully it's not too uncomfortable in church, right? Um, if uh, that makes you uncomfortable, being in church when it, the weather's like this, um, then uh, how about you uh, work to establish some kind of fund <laughs> to uh, add some kind of uh, air handling for the church to uh, make it more comfortable on Sunday, right? Um, this is always the problem about complaining, isn't it? Uh, to complain about something but to do nothing is really kind of pointless, right? So, uh, like I say, I hope it's not too uncomfortable, but uh, we'll do our best with it. And then, uh, what else? Anything else? Nope. I think that'll be it. So, Lord's blessings. Um, to, today is not comfortable at all. So, um, you know, stay inside if you need to, or take it easy. All right. And we'll see you in the morning for divine service. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.